This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, it is Black Maternal Health Week, and this week's episode will provide context and value-based solutioning on how to address the alarming rise of maternal mortality in the U.S. We have horrifically poor maternal health outcomes, especially in the African-American population of our country, and it's directly attributable to a flawed design of our healthcare system that's juxtaposed with the presence of longstanding and systemic institutional racism. If there was ever an opportunity for improving health equity through value-based care, it is with this moral imperative to ensure the fundamental human right to have a safe and evidence-based childbirth that optimizes the chance of survival. And on this week's podcast, you're going to hear from one of the leading voices in health equity, reproductive justice, and value-based maternal health. Listeners, our guest today is Dr. Neil Shaw. He's the chief medical officer of Maven Clinic, the world's largest virtual clinic for family health care. He's also a visiting scientist at Harvard Medical School, where he previously served as a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology. Dr. Shaw has been recognized with with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Humanitarian of the Year Award from the March of Dimes for his impact on maternal health in the United States. He's also featured in the film's Aftershock, which won the Special Jury Prize for Impact at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, as well as The Color of Care from the Smithsonian Channel and executive producer Oprah Winfrey. As a physician scientist, Dr. Shaw has written landmark academic papers on maternal health and healthcare policy and contributed to four books, including as senior author of Understanding Value-Based Healthcare. He's listed among the 40 smartest people in healthcare by the Becker's Hospital Review, and he currently serves on the advisory board of the National Institutes of Health and Office of Women's Health Research. Eric, I'm so excited to have our listeners hear from Dr. Shaw today. Well, it's another great podcast on race to value. You're going to hear from, as Daniel said, one of the leading experts in maternal health equity. In this podcast episode, we also mention frequently 
the documentary Aftershock, and the Institute for Advancing Health Value is holding a screening this week as this episode is coming out. So we encourage you to sign up for that. It's really an inspiring film that turns pain into power and tells the important story that needs to be told. If you like this content, yeah, please, as always, feel free to go to Apple Podcasts, give us a, a rating and review. Uh, we also have a podcast newsletter at racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter. And I also wanted to say that we wanted to dedicate this podcast to Shimani Gibson, Amber Rose Isaac, Kira Johnson, Maria Corona, Shah Asia Simple, Cordiel Street, and the thousands of women who have lost their lives in the United States, a maternal health care system. We must do better. Dr. Shaw, thanks for joining us on the Race to Value this week. As a humanitarian, a clinician, researcher, you've really become a leading voice for more equitable maternal health outcomes. And it's just an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you, Eric. I'm really honored to be here. Well, let's start our conversation today by discussing the flawed economics of our fee-for-service system when it comes to maternal health and how this design disproportionately impacts minoritized populations. And I wanted to focus this first question on that flawed system design. Of course, it's one part of many challenges uh, with maternal health in our country, but it's a, it's a big problem that we need to solve, and you know, it requires us to follow the money. You know, and the healthcare industry clearly has these misaligned financial incentives that favor C-sections over vaginal births. Since 1970, we've seen a 500% increase in C-section procedures over vaginal deliveries, with the rate of C-sections among black birthing persons being much higher than the general population. And C-sections introduce the potential for complications because it's a surgery. I mean, it's just like any surgery. So there's potential organ injury, hemorrhage, infection, and these complications are three times more likely to happen with a C-section procedure than a vaginal birth. And there's also this cost advantage for hospitals that provide these procedures because they're, they only take 45 minutes versus the six to 12 hours required for supporting vaginal deliveries. And of course, the reimbursement for C-sections is so much higher with that, that procedure bringing in an average of $10,000 compared to the average reimbursement for a vaginal delivery, which is $4,500. And it's just no wonder you know, why we see so many of these uh, unnecessary C-sections that happen as a result. And you know, basically, we have 99% of people giving birth in hospital labor and delivery units that resemble something like cardiac ICUs, that they're surrounded by surgeons, and there's all this uh, machinery, you know, in terms of the care delivery and the design, and it just leads to this unnecessary uh, procedure. And later on in our discussion, we're going to engage you on how our system must be redesigned to address anti-Black racism. But let's first tackle the economics of maternal health care. You know, Dr. Shaw, what are the implications for maternity services in this emerging paradigm of value-based care where there is a large opportunity to introduce a more evidence-based clinical practice model that provides better care outcomes at lower costs. And then also, what are are there any value-based payment models evolving that will emphasize more team-based approaches to care and bridge pregnancy and contraceptive counseling and engage expecting families in new ways? Eric, you told me that you had a sophisticated audience that we were going to go deep, and you were not kidding. That that was an incredible opening gambit as as questions go. Maybe just to 
actually go high level first. Childbirth is the most utilized healthcare service in the United States of America. So 25% of all hospitalizations are either a mom or a baby after a birth. And so cumulatively, what that means is the cost of hospitalizing people to give birth is approximately 0.6% of our entire GDP. What that means is if you were to take our whole economy and spread it out across the table, like all $17 trillion of it, you would be able to see the cost of hospitalizing people to give birth with your naked eye. That's how big we're talking. Now, one of the things that I want to be careful about here is that value means value. It's not just about cost, right? And actually, I think that there is an opportunity to extract more value out of our maternal health system. And also, the system as a whole is, you know, meaning like maternal health as a whole is undervalued. And so we don't invest enough. And the way that I think about that from a payment paradigm is that, I mean, you said it best, like basically you could hurt people in healthcare in two ways. You can hurt them when you do too little too late or when you do too much too soon. And in childbirth, we have both, but predominantly we have a too much too soon problem. One in three people get major surgery to give birth. One in 10 of their babies go to the ICU. That's crazy. That's not how it was a generation ago, but that's where we are today. And, you know, if you look to your left, look to your right, somebody's had a C-section. Um, even when you're in a conversation where there's a lot of men around, it's still the most common surgery performed in the room. And, you know, it's become so common, we've, we've normalized it. But as you said, it's a 50% margin per case. Uh, so that creates uh, potentially a misaligned incentive. And there's real harm from uh, operating on people that don't need operations because you can't get surgical complications without doing surgery. From a payment perspective, I think, you know, the first order issue is always thinking about the structures we have in place. And as you said, you take 99% of Americans, you put them in ICUs and you surround them by surgeons, you're going to see a lot of, lot of surgery, whether you need it or not. And so we've got to rethink, you know, what are the best places and settings to give birth? Uh, it's notable to me that my grandparents, probably your grandparents were born at home. And um, it's only been the last generation or two that we institutionalize both birth and death um, and actually have um, made things better in some ways and also made things worse in very parallel ways, where if you think about it, a living will and a birth plan are both designed to do the same thing, which is uh, to get the healthcare system to tone it down appropriately when they're supposed to. Um, so how do we get out of a system from a payment perspective where you get rewarded for doing things to people as opposed to making them healthy? Part of the answer could be to think about an episode of care that you want to construct and pay for as opposed to a surgery. And we've tried to do this across healthcare, much harder to do for chronic disease management than it is for pregnancy because pregnancy has an endpoint. Uh, in fact, one of the easiest to define episodes in healthcare is you know pregnancy to birth, um, and 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 you know the the period afterwards when a person has to recover. But so that that's something that's been advanced, uh, you know, paying per episode and trying to create bundles. And it's directionally correct. One of the things that's interesting, though, is though, and you also pointed this out, is that it's not just that you get reimbursed more to do a C-section; it's that the vaginal delivery costs more because it takes longer, and you've got a lot of people who have to invest in, in providing that level of support. So I think that we should actually not just pay less for C-sections, but pay more for the thing that we want to see, which would imply that we should pay more for vaginal deliveries than we do today. Dr. Shaw, our, our modern day healthcare system that we're discussing is clearly this profit-driven medical industrial complex. And, and it was also built though on a legacy of systemic racism. And unfortunately that, that racism still exists today. 
And to understand this reality, it requires us to look no further than outcomes data. According to the CDC, the maternal mortality rate for Black women is 43 per 100,000, which shows us that they have a pregnancy-related death risk that is three to four times greater than that of white women. And the reasons for this disparity are complex and multifactorial, but many of them are thought to be related to systemic racism, implicit bias, disparities in access, and flawed economics of our healthcare system that you've just addressed. And then you think about the people, though, that are working in our healthcare system. They're certainly well-intended, but they can still do racist things in medical practice at a subconscious level, which is confirmed in data that validates the provision of non-standard care, and it manifests as implicit bias. And then you have the cultural incongruency of care delivery at the level of relationship between patient and provider. Ultimately, patients want to be seen, to be heard, and know that someone genuinely cares about their well-being. But African-American patients don't receive the same level of relationship-based care as white patients, and it makes Blacks less likely to trust providers and have the support that they need to have a vaginal delivery that they want. In the documentary, Aftershock, you state, the well-being of moms is a bellwether for society in general. Every injustice in society shows up in maternal health and maternal health outcomes. And I could not agree more with that statement. And Dr. Shaw, in maternal health care, the question I have for you is how could we get better at providing culturally competent care that affirms a person's dignity the way we hear and see Black patients to improve safety? And how can systems and institutions in our society be redesigned to address anti-Black racism more actively? Wow, that's also a great question. And I want to acknowledge, um, Daniel, that both in your question and Eric's previous question, you were thoughtful about acknowledging that uh, you know a high degree of racial inequity exists across outcomes. So maternal mortality is the blaring headline, but it's true across the board. For every death, there are 100 cases of major morbidity. For every case of major morbidity, there are tens of thousands of cases of people who suffer from undertreated illness, economic disempowerment, social isolation, all the things that come with motherhood, and then worse for people of color, and particularly worse for uh, Black people and for Native people. And um, you know, when we when we talk about inequity, it's important to also name that anti-Black racism specifically is a particularly severe form. So how do we unwind that? I think part of it is that you can't fix what you're not seeing and you can't see what you're not measuring. So we've been uh, observing racial inequity in healthcare for a long time. It is relatively recently though that we've been observing it with respect to maternal mortality in a systematic way. And in public health, we have a tendency to, you know, every epidemiologic study uh, has a table one where you look at the demographics of the population that you're studying, and there's always a row for race. And it's important to look at the racial composition of a population you're stu studying. The, the problem is that we have conflated race and racism in interpreting the results of what we're seeing. And we, in public health and in medicine, have assumed that there's something about a person's race biologically that makes them different to the degree that we've actually embedded it formulaically in the practice of medicine. So the C-section vaginal delivery story is one of them, where most people who have a C-section in their first pregnancy could very well have a vaginal delivery the second time, but that's not often what happens. And there's a calculator that we use to predict somebody's odds of a successful vaginal delivery. In that calculator is the opportunity to put in someone's race. And if they're Black or Hispanic, it drops their odds of success in the calculator, and it changes how they're counseled. That had been 
basically the paradigm of practice for my whole career. It only changed one year ago that we don't downgrade you for being black in terms of your odds of a successful natural delivery. And the intent of that calculator was good. It was looking at data that said that black people were historically less likely to have a vaginal delivery, but it never interrogated the reasons why. It never really considered the fact that the reason might be that they're less likely to get support, not that they're less likely to be biologically capable. And so I think the answer to your question starts with having more precision around understanding why we see racial inequity. Now, uh, the economics here are at play equally. Um, if you really want to understand redlining in our country, one of the most stark examples is in healthcare and maternal health specifically. So in Boston, where I practice, if you live on Beacon Hill, you can easily get on the subway and have a direct line to my hospital. If you live in Dorchester, you have to take three city buses. And that's because of the history of how Boston was intentionally designed, in which it makes it harder for some people to get to care than others. Um, in the film Aftershock, we spent a lot of time in Tulsa, and we were there on the centennial of the 1921 race massacre, where an entire community was burned to the ground 100 years ago. And there's a tendency to think about episodes of sordid racial violence in as being you know historical artifacts. But the, the, the fact of the matter is the same community that is in place uh, still has the worst maternal health outcomes in a state that has some of the worst outcomes in the country. And so the, the legacy uh, and, uh, of, and, and the reach of racism can be really, really far. Well, Dr. Shaw, this is really just an egregious example of care disparities. And at a human level, it's an absolute injustice. And we really have to get the whole country to reimagine the care that women should expect for one of the most important and vulnerable moments of their lives. And when you look at the alarming rate of black maternal mortality, it ultimately comes down to communication. I mean, black moms aren't dying necessarily of the medical condition like what is stated on their death certificate. What they're really dying of is failure of communication. And systemic racism is not only present at the point of care, but also deeply manifested in our society, as you just mentioned. And there's evidence also to suggest that there are significant disparities in health literacy between black and whites in the United States. And there was a report from the National Assessment of Adult Literacy where black adults scored lower than white adults on measures of health literacy with 12% of black adults demonstrating a proficient level of health literacy compared to 26% of white adults. And these disparities in health literacy can have serious consequences for the health outcomes of black individuals, and limited health literacy can lead to, of course, poor understanding of health information and difficulty navigating this healthcare system. And I just think back when I was a hospital administrator in a former life, you know, we tried to use a communication framework called ADET, and it's an acronym. I won't get into the details of that, but it was designed to help us keep patients informed and make them feel heard. But, you know, I never really felt like it actually became hardwired in our culture beyond it being just something that we had on the back of our name badge. So, you know, Dr. Shaw, you know, I wanted to ask you if you could provide some examples of how we can better structure communications to improve health literacy and the overall patient experience for African-Americans giving birth? And, and how can leaders do a better job of making sure their organizational culture ensures that patient preferences are, are heard and providers do a better job of explaining to patients what's, what's going to happen next? 
I really appreciate that question, Eric. Just to amplify something that you said, people are not dying necessarily of what's on the death certificate. I've seen people survive severe hemorrhage, and I've seen them not survive more moderate hemorrhage. The cause of death was not hemorrhage. The root cause was a failure of communication and teamwork. And the Joint Commission has shown that about 80 to 90% of the sentinel events, the near misses, the deaths, uh, are due fundamentally to failures of communication and teamwork. And what's interesting about that is that in medical school, you spend a lot of time learning about the physiology and learning how to manage a hemorrhage. But communication and teamwork are like the ultimate artisanal crafts. Some people are good at it. Some people are bad at it. Some people are good at it good at it some of the time. And throughout healthcare, one of the things that we've seen is that by structuring communication and making it more reliable, we can significantly improve survival rates. In fact, the surgical safety checklist is sort of the canonical example of before doing a surgery, before picking up the scalpel in the same way that before hitting the throttle on a plane, you got to run a checklist. If you do that, you can drop mortality in half for every surgery on every continent on earth. And uh, you know, after the smallpox vaccine, the WHO thought one of the most impactful things they ever did uh, was to uh, you know implement the surgical safety checklist. So the equivalent in maternal health is the same, except for the fact that the patient is not asleep. They're awake, and they very much have a take on what's going on. If you think about it, like most of... Um, you know, it, it, childbirth is sort of the ultimate team sport. Like you shouldn't walk out into the woods and have a baby. Um, we're sort of designed to be able to help each other out. And uh, in 2023, when a person goes in and labor to a hospital, um, the team is kind of forming for the first time. Like maybe they'll know their obstetrician but or their midwife, but in most cases, it's whoever is on call. And they almost certainly won't know who the nurse is because they get assigned almost randomly. And so this is a team that forms for the first time that has to be high functioning for one of the most important moments of our lives. So when you think about what enables high performing performing teams, you've got to structure the communication, you've got to create psychological safety, and you've got to create role clarity. So one of the things that my team did several years ago, and this was also depicted in Aftershock, as we stood up a program called Team Birth, where this is almost ridiculously simple. There's no AI, there's no technology. We took the dry erase whiteboard that is in every inpatient room in America, that is primarily being used for a nurse to sort of talk to herself. And we made a bigger whiteboard and we made it so that the, the mom in labor can see it along with her family and can understand what's happening. And we structured it so that you always write the same four things. You write down the members of the team, starting with the mom and you give them names and roles. You write down uh, the things that only the mom can tell you, which includes symptoms or preferences, but also include things like how much energy you have to push, which is not a symptom or a preference. Uh, you write down the plan. And then the most powerful thing is you write down the time, the next time the team is going to get back together again and talk. And that's so that people in labor don't feel like passengers on a plane that's being held on the tarmac without anybody telling them what's going on, which is what's typical today. And it turns out if you do those things, the team is much more aligned, much more likely to uh, arrive at the right decisions. Because uh, in medicine and in childbirth in particular, there's always a ton of uncertainty. Like you have no idea who's gonna come in and be in labor on any given day. Like maybe when there's a full moon, you're like, okay, maybe it'll be busy today. But other than that, you have no idea. You don't know how quickly labor is gonna progress. You don't know who's gonna be sick enough to need an operating room or a blood bank. Um, and then even at the moment of pushing, in 2023, there's no technology that tells you how big a baby is going to be until it's out with accuracy. So you just have to decide what you believe is gonna happen and that has to be collaborative between 
the nurse who spends more time at the bedside than anyone else, the person in labor who knows what she's experiencing and feeling better than anyone else, and the obstetrician who's delivered thousands of babies before and uh, you know, can do an exam and can add that information into the equation. Dr. Shaw, I want to build on on that uh, communication structure that you've been discussing and, and and take it a little bit further. We've been talking about the vulnerabilities in Black communities and entrenched institutional racism towards African-Americans that's created these disparities that show up in maternal health outcomes and, and so many other outcomes, as you've mentioned. And our country's medical establishment it has a longstanding history of actually abusing African-Americans. When you think about the 40-year Tuskegee experiment that created generational trauma and a generation and a general distrust of the health system, and Black women in particular live with a legacy of reproductive oppression and continue to experience reproductive coercion, sometimes leading them to distrust their health system and further exacerbate disparities. For, for example, Black women are more likely to report having been pressured by a clinician to use a contraceptive method. And some Black women may be forced to continue pregnancies because of onerous restrictions and a lack of insurance coverage that have pushed abortion out of reach. And these experiences fall short of the level of high-quality, patient-centered care that all women should be able to expect. It really should be a fundamental human right to give birth to a child in this country and to live, to raise that child. And, and ensuring this right for African-Americans should really start with building trust. And as a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, you've had the opportunity to travel across the country and discuss maternal health outcomes and build bridges of trust with communities that have been highly impacted by these maternal mortality rates. And, and given your leadership and those experiences that you've had in health equity, I'd love to hear your perspective on how we can engender trust between medical professionals in the communities of color that they serve. I really appreciate that question as well. I mean, I really think that the existential challenge for the healthcare system in 2023 is trustworthiness and that it's not the job of the people that we serve to be more trusting of us. It's our job to be more trustworthy, particularly for those who've been historically disenfranchised. And just to dive into that history a little bit more, Daniel, the reason anti-Black racism is particularly severe is because of the institution of slavery and its legacy. And what I mean by that is that slavery required commoditizing people, including their reproductive potential, and uh, putting a price and a value on that. And the institution of medicine grew up alongside it. And so it was physicians who were called upon to put a price value on people's reproductive potential uh, on the basis of believing that they were biologically different, that there was something about their black skin that made them different. And those same physicians had to justify the institution of slavery by, for example, perpetuating the belief that Black people have a different tolerance for pain than white people. And that is something that persists to the, to the present day, where we see evidence that when Black people express concern about the symptoms that they're having, including pain, the healthcare system is slower to respond. And it's so insidious that that happens irrespective of the person's income, education, it happened to Serena Williams. Beyonce has a story. Meghan Markle has a story. It happens to 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 people um, regardless of what you think their station would be, because there's this deeply embedded idea, and uh, it's also insidiously written into uh, medical textbooks, where every single clinical vignette that a medical student encounters tells you the race of the patient, and then that is followed by a multiple choice question, right? And so you read uh, in a textbook that 
there's a case of a 21-year-old African-American woman who's pregnant. And then your brain automatically thinks she probably has preeclampsia then, and that's the choice you've got to pick. And that's why they tell you that detail. So these sort of like freewheeling stereotypes and associations have become part of how we're trained and are all built upon that legacy, uh, which is inclusive of these horrendous experiments like the Tuskegee experiment and Henrietta Lacks and even policies like you know, during the Reagan administration, the whole welfare queens thing around people's uh, ability to, to reproduce. So that that history is very real. So when we think about what it will take for us to be trustworthy, it's really three things. The first is that we have to be competent. And what I mean by that is we have to create equitable outcomes in this country. We're far from that. Daniel, Eric, you both described the statistics. It also turns out that being competent isn't enough. We also have to affirm people's dignity by valuing their lived experience. That's what listening to them and hearing them means. That's what cultural congruence and cultural humility means. And then the third thing is we've got to be reliable. And what that means is we've got to show up for people when they need us to and when, and when they expect us to. And that is probably the competency that our current healthcare system is the furthest from. We are terrible at showing up for people when they expect us to and when they need us to. But you can't expect people to trust you if you're not able to do that. Dr. Shaw, you know, as we're discussing the importance of communication and building trust, I, I can't help but think about the importance of having precision in the language that we use and how to ch achieve it through that competency. And, and we also have to understand this intersectionality that contributes to the multiple forms of inequality and disadvantage in our society. And you talked about that, you know, from the, you know, the earliest days of the founding of our country in slavery, where we created obstacles for African-Americans. And, you know, it seems that, however, despite the the history, it isn't widely understood in conventional ways of those thinking about these outcomes that come from a, a privileged uh, class. And, you know, as you discussed, I mean, we've had these poor black maternal health outcomes and they've persisted since slavery. I mean, you know, black wombs were thought of as, you know, as you said, they were commoditized like a machine of production to support the plantation. And, and as I was uh, reading before our discussion today, you know, I didn't even realize that J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology, developed a C-section procedure so slaves could avoid fistulas from vaginal bursts to uh, produce more slave labor. And and now, fast forward, we're in this post-slavery era. And you know, as you said, you know, we we still have these embedded biases. And but you know, we've seen how uh, you know in the formation of the the medical practice, you know, white physicians, you know, demanded to be more involved in the birthing process. We've seen the virtually the elimination of the midwifery profession, and 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 it's predominant in, in labor and delivery. If you look at the vast majority of other countries, and you mentioned Serena Williams. I mean, she's one of the greatest tennis players of all time, and even she couldn't escape racism within maternal health care when she was delivering her baby. And, you know, despite this longstanding track record of racism and maternal health, you know, I, when I was watching Aftershock, you made this comment that we didn't even really start telling the story of black women dying in childbirth until 2018. And then, you know, consequently, the federal government's become more compelled to address this crisis of maternal mortality among black women. You know, there was the recent passage of the Black Maternal Health Monibus Act of 2021 as a leading example. So, Dr. Shaw, I wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on the progression of 
our country right now, knowing the history and and you know the 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 opportunity that we have to make this right, you know, are we making strides towards this realization of Black maternal health as a longstanding public health crisis? And are most Americans now starting to realize that in most situations, a black woman having a baby is just as dangerous as a black man being pulled over by a tra uh, at a traffic stop? I mean, I'm just really interested in the history and then how we go forward and our society at large. You know, we 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 shouldn't have to continue struggling with understanding the realities of black maternal health. And I'd love to get your perspective on the long term and you know how we can get this right at a societal level. You bet. Let me let me talk about the the sort of big picture first, and then I think the wisdom I have to share is actually from a from a colleague who's been at this for fifty years. But first, you know, you mentioned that during the in, in the film, I I said that maternal health is a bellwether for the well being of society as a whole. And when we talk about the injustices in society, we're talking about gender inequity, racial inequity, geographic inequity. You know, like ninety percent of our country is rural. And also, when we talk about maternal health specifically, what we're really talking about is generational inequity. This idea that the last generation or the current generation maybe in some ways isn't as well off as the last one. And that is a pervasive sentiment in our country at this moment and in our politics, right? Whether you're talking about make America great again or build back better, both ideas are tapping into the notion that hope and opportunity and progress are eroding in our country. And there is real empirical evidence that that's true. You see it in policing, uh, to your point. You see it in educational attainment, and you see it in uh, maternal health. The fact that an American today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother. But when you try to really unpack that, the only way to understand it is through the lens of racial inequity. The fact that even if we are making things better, you can convince yourself you're making things better on average, but leave some people further behind. And that's what we've done for years, but some people were being left so much further behind that today the the wealthiest black woman in California is at greater risk than the poorest white woman in California. That is horrible. Um, it is some of the, I think, most convincing evidence that racism is a clear and present danger to people's lives in America in 2023. So that that is the status quo. I will say I have a lot of hope, though, that we are moving in the right direction. And it's not just because of the discourse we're having. The discourse that we're having actually is uh, palpably different. In 2019, I led a, a conversation at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecology where you know I was invited to speak on this topic. I was also conscious of the fact that you know I'm not a black woman, I don't have a uterus. And so I uh, what I what I did is I moderated a panel of people who did have the the sort of lived experience. And we spoke directly about racism. And at the time in 2019, which wasn't really that long ago, it was a really kind of edgy and controversial panel. Um, if you think about it, I mean, this is a meeting where people were coming to get their continuing medical education credits from all over the country, from the heartland, from all over America. And this was something that they were not really prepared to hear. And it's because when most of us are uh, growing up, we're taught that racism is evil. And so it's really hard to recognize in ourselves. What's changed between 2019 and you know, the George Floyd summer and today is that I think there is a willingness to self-examine. There is an ability to uh, create spaces to have conversations. We've been doing screenings of Aftershock across the country in communities and in hospitals. And I've been amazed by the ways that uh, people in hospitals are, are self-reflective. They are 
uh, talking about things differently. And it's not controversial to talk about racism in medicine in the same way. Um, so that, that gives me hope. The other thing that I will say is that maternal mortality is the lagging indicator, right? Like we just saw a report last week that said maternal mortality went up by 40% in 2021 due to the pandemic. And then of course, people of color were hurt disproportionately, particularly black and native Americans. I mean, it's infuriating of course, but it can be discouraging, but uh, the leading indicators are strong, which is that at the, at the same time, the CDC changed their definition of which deaths they consider preventable. And in 2018, they said three out of five deaths were preventable. And in 2022, 2023, they said that four out of five are preventable, which means we're getting better and widening the aperture, not just considering what's on the death certificate, uh, chasing down root causes that are in the system, uh, and working to address them. And I think you know the way I would round out uh, my response to that question is that a bad system will beat a good person every time. And we've gotten to a place where we're no, no longer castigating individuals. Individuals need to be held to account, especially when they have power in these institutions. But we are recognizing that racism is systemic, and it's not just about evil individuals. Dr. Shah, I want to dive deeper into that statement about a bad system will beat a good person. I mean, this is just an incredible discussion and you're a wealth of knowledge and I appreciate everything you've been teaching us. And, and, and I think there's more to learn about how you're changing the system, uh, the work that you're doing to change the system through the Maven Clinic. And, and you're a chief medical officer at Maven Clinic and it's the world's largest virtual clinic for family health care that offers continuous holistic care for fertility and family building through maternity, parenting, pediatrics, and menopause. Not only is MAVEN a leading virtual care model built around women and families, it's actually delivering better outcomes and lower costs for everyone they serve. And the clinic's been able to lower healthcare costs by raising the bar through ongoing assessments, proactive check-ins, human touch points, you know, the drive engagement, helping your members identify risks early and prevent costly complications. And the clinic has... 20% lower C-section rates, 28% lower NICU admission rates, 31% fewer unnecessary ER visits, and an excellent industry-leading NPS score. And digital care coordination and education at Maven Clinic have been instrumental at reducing unnecessary C-section rates. I want to also bring up that the company employs a short-form digital SDOH screening tool that reduces barriers to identifying and addressing social needs. You've got this outstanding model for delivering better outcomes at all scale with over 15 million covered lives and, and five and a half million total touch points with black members using Maven provider appointments at a two times the rate of non-black members. Um, I'd love for you to go deeper into the, you know, the, the details of Maven Clinic and its digital care model and how it's able to scale equitable maternal health outcomes and and how can a digital care model like yours impact people's health in the same way that drugs or devices can you bet and as a lead-in to my my response i want to go back a second i i told you that i would share some wisdom from one of my colleagues and i i want to do that in the spirit spirit of hope uh and how we can uh you know be optimistic about our role in making things better but uh loretta ross who wrote the book on reproductive justice and was around for uh, Roe v. Wade 50 years ago and the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, last summer, uh, I asked her the same question that you asked me about, you know, things don't seem like they're going in the right direction. How do you maintain your optimism? 
And what she said is, you should not imagine yourself as the entire chain of freedom. You're not responsible for what your ancestors did. You're not responsible for what your 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 uh, your progeny do. Uh, your job is to make sure the chain doesn't break at your link. And what she told me, um, and by the way, this is just how she talks. This wasn't like a quote. You know, this is just like literally what she said to me was, you know, when the world's a mess, grab a broom and clean where you are. And that really resonated with me because we all have roles to play and uh, it comes down to how you use your position. I was an academic before I came to Maven Clinic. And as an academic, my role was different. At Maven Clinic, part of what was really exciting to me, and this was actually driven largely from my experience during the pandemic, I realized that health is not produced within the four walls of our hospitals. It's produced in people's homes. It's produced in people's communities. It's produced uh, in their workplaces, actually, where they spend a lot of time. And what we have is not a healthcare system in our hospitals. We have a rescue system. And if we want to produce health, we've got to think about things differently. So at Maven, one of the things that's exciting to me is that uh, we don't have to build blood banks and operating rooms and helipads. You know, like the hospitals are, 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 are building the rescue system and they can do that. They do that well. What they fail to do well is produce health. Uh, and so, uh, you know, an app isn't going to fix healthcare, but that's not what we're building. We're taking the devices that people have in their pockets and we're turning into a portal into a human service. And it's, you know, they, they carry these devices with them. And I think about all the time, what can I get done within a 15 minute appointment? And what could I get done if I lived in somebody's pocket as they, they walked out the door? And so there are things that you cannot do digitally. You cannot deliver babies through a screen, but what you can do um, and this is not like splitting the atom, it's very basic, but you can provide people with care and support and access. And what we do, like literally, is just find people who need more care and support and give it to them. Um, and so just to give you an example, we serve the Medicaid population in Arkansas. If you're a person who's pregnant in the Delta region of Arkansas, what you have access to in terms of healthcare is what's physically proximate to you normally. Uh, and so if you have gestational diabetes, you get an obstetrician. But what you actually need is a nutritionist because the best way to treat gestational diabetes is to change your diet. Unfortunately, changing your diet is really, really hard. And even if you could meet with a nutritionist, booking an appointment a couple of weeks out is completely different from having someone who could meet with you on demand, look through your phone at your refrigerator and help you plan a meal in real time, and then coach and encourage you. Uh, and that can be the difference between a 34-week delivery and months in the NICU uh, or a full-term delivery and everybody going home together. Um, so that's the kind of capability we're talking about, the kind of capability where if you live in the Mississippi Delta and you're pregnant, uh, you're probably black, you are probably, just by statistics, a teenager, and probably your obstetrician is a white male over 60. And so it's unlikely that your obstetrician shares any of your lived experience. And part of the way that we're able to earn trust and take care of people is by you know matching people to care that is not the care that's physically proximate, but it is care that can affirm them because, you know, if you want to be matched with a black obstetrician, that's something that we can do. Well, Dr. Shaw, I, I love the model at Maven Clinic. And one of the things that Daniel mentioned when he was providing an overview uh, in the question uh, is around, you know, your identification of uh, these social determinants of health and, you know, how you're able to address, you know, some of these barriers in society, everything from food insecurity, transportation, housing instability. And I know that Maven 
has developed a, a commitment to organizations in the community. And, you know, there was even a quote in your annual report from Dr. Don Godbolt, the director of health equity. And, you know, she said community-based organizations are essential to addressing the many disparities we see in maternal health across the United States. I wanted to just ask you if you could provide some brief commentary on, you know, how do we form these community partnerships to really create a more innovative and holistic and comprehensive approach to addressing some of these longstanding health issues? I think part of being a good actor in this space is having a good understanding of your role and being clear about what you are and what you aren't. So the advantage of Maven Clinic is that physical proximity to care isn't a constraint. We can develop economies of scale through a technology platform that allow you to connect to any kind of provider, any time of day, anywhere you are. And that's an amazing capability. Also, it's not a substitute for the things that you need in person. And when it comes to social determinants of health, you almost need a hyper-local response, particularly when it comes to material needs like food and housing. Now, it turns out social determinants of health are more than material needs. And in the tool that we developed and then published through peer review, what we did is we took you know, a 17 question screening tool for social determinants of health that was the gold standard, but is not pragmatic to implement in any setting, especially a digital one where you don't have a captive audience. Like people can put their phones down at any point. And we turned it into a three question screener that we're able to pragmatically screen a lot of people through. And we asked people about their material needs, but we also asked them about their personal safety uh, it turns out intimate partner violence is very prevalent in both commercial and publicly insured populations. And we asked them about their loneliness. It turns out that there's a technical definition of loneliness where if you don't talk to someone that you believe cares about you more than five times a week, you're lonely. And it turns out that loneliness is also very prevalent among uh, birthing people across the United States. And uh, in some of those non-material ways, we are very well positioned to help by connecting people to services and making sure that they're safe. Uh, but when it comes to material needs, you absolutely need community partnerships. And um, you mentioned Don Godbolt. I'm very proud and honored to work with her. She she uh, is someone that we were able to convince to to come over to Maven uh, and and lead our health equity efforts. And you know, she's not a DEI officer. Her job is to have accountability to the business for making sure that our outcomes are equitable. And to do that, you've got to partner with the community. So I think that in 2023, the birth equity movement is in a similar place that the HIV AIDS movement was in the late 1980s, where you have a proliferation of community-based organizations across the country that are the ones holding power to account. And you know, I'm happy to qualify that more, but it's, it's, it's exciting to see that year over year, there are more organizations that are galvanizing on behalf of their community to make sure that people have access to doulas, make sure that they're coordinating with local services to get people housing, get people food. And at Maven, the way that we've thought about how to partner is that we we stood up a program we called uh, Impact for Families. And um, we provide uh, financial support to the community-based organizations, as well as technical assistance. And it's almost the way like a big law firm has like pro bono projects that they take on we utilize our capacity and our technical expertise at Maven to support the organization. So for example, if they need marketing help, we have marketing experts uh, and they may not have access to that where they are, but we can we can lend those services. And it turns out that really galvanizes our employees. So uh, that's honestly what's in it for us, um, but it also helps us serve the communities and it helps us get to better outcomes. Well, you're certainly well on the way, getting better outcomes. It's just been uh, yeah, exciting uh, for me to see 
just how innovative your model is there at Maven. And I know that was a big professional identity shift for you personally when you joined the Maven team a few years ago from academic physician to technology executive and CMO. And, you know, I even remember how that move made national headlines a few years ago. There was a, that the Wall Street Journal article with the headline, obstetrician Neil Shaw joined the telehealth revolution. And I'm really interested in how Maven Clinic has offered you an opportunity to be more intentional about how to create scalability and improved maternal health outcomes. I mean, you're able to bring this commitment to scientific rigor and health equity to build a startup and ultimately meet this immensely unmet need at a national level. And I'm so impressed with your vision to effectuate change uh, within our our industry just as much, if not more, than what you were even able to do as an academic. And your contribution as an evangelist for maternal health and reproductive justice has really placed you in a position to be one of the nation's premier thought leaders and how to improve on the dismal black maternal health outcomes we've been talking about for the last hour. You've also been really intentional about creating these spaces for dialogue on medical racism among industry stalwarts and, you know, something that I think is so important if we're going to uh, realize the, the the change that we want to see in the world. So, you know, Dr. Shaw, can you discuss your path from academic physician to technology executive and how that's enabled you to make more of an outsized impact at a national level? And, and also, given your unique vantage point, do you think the business world is ready to ensure that innovation and growth is not able to conflict with the public good, especially with the moral imperative of improving health equity? I mean, basically, can we achieve this change to improve equity and also be successful uh, from the business side of healthcare? I believe we can, Eric. You know, I certainly hope so. I mentioned, I mean, it's like, it's rare in life that you have these truly like cinematic moments and then change course. And my, my switch was as much like midlife crisis and pandemic on we as anything else, you know, but it was this moment where there was some, I was on call in the hospital and it was like March, 2020, which was a terrifying time. Our hospitals were over capacity. We didn't have room. And there was someone who called me from one of our underserved communities in Chelsea, Massachusetts, who was symptomatic. She was pregnant. She probably had COVID but she didn't meet the criteria to be hospitalized based on the phone conversation. And so per the triaging algorithm that I had in front of me, what I told her was that she needed to stay at home and self-isolate, which was what we were guiding everybody to do. And what she told me is she couldn't do that because she lived with her parents and she had children too. She lived in a multi-generational household. There was no way she could self-isolate. Oh, and also, by the way, she drove buses for a living. She had one of those essential jobs. And so you know, she couldn't earn money through like being on a Zoom screen all day. And that really, really hit me like a ton of bricks. And, you know, I think the change that you can make in academia, in the public sector, in the private sector, it's not one is better. It's just all different, you know, and we all have a role to play. But in academia, I'm proud of the, the research contributions that we made. I'm proud of the way that we were able to shape a public discourse. My challenge was that my ideas had no product market fit. You know, part of the privilege of being in academia is you can work upstream of where the markets are. And to me, like a, a startup was getting a little bit closer, right? The purpose of a startup should be to meet an unmet need sustainably and at scale. There's this Henry Ford quote about if he would have asked the people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. 
you know, startups are always trying to sell people cars that think they want faster horses, right? You're always incrementally just a little bit on the edge of like the current state in the future. But that's part of what excited me. That's what drove me to be there. And specifically, what I saw was that in the digital health space, because we're not building brick and mortar, we can move faster. We can take advantage of the window of opportunity where everybody's talking about maternal health. And for us, you know, the largest addressable population is Medicaid. And so we had built this capability to serve employer clients and then had this opportunity to then expand it to reach a broader population and to do it by putting our fees at risk because you know the willingness to pay of a Medicaid system is a lot lower than the commercial side. And so the only way to make the unit economics work is to put your fees at risk. And to do that, you have to do that on the basis of reproducible outcomes. And that's where science comes in. So that was a little bit long-winded, but I guess my thinking was, you know, I'm not necessarily a technology executive, but I do understand science and I understand what science gets you and what it doesn't. You know, what science does for you is it gives you confidence that what you think you're observing is true, which is increasingly hard in 2023. But if, you know, correctly deployed science should give you confidence that what you think you're observing is true. It does not, though, change the current state unless you also do other things which is create products that fit into markets that can then drive change at scale. Dr. Shaw, I love that answer. That's just, uh, it makes me smile hearing you describe that. And I, I appreciate that that reflection and the change that you've made. And, and you've definitely done so much for uh, shaping the public discourse, as you've said. And I want to I explore that a little further as we wrap up our conversation today. You know, I've, I've personally learned so much through watching these documentaries that that you've been involved with the first one being the color of care that follows the story of the the death of gary fowler as told by his by his son uh, keith gambrell and it was a it was a harpo industries production that that told this story and you were involved in that and then the second one that we just recently watched that we've referenced a couple times that we'll be hosting a screening for our audience to join us during Black Maternal Health Week, which is Aftershock. And Aftershock follows the stories of Shimani Gibson and Amber Rose Isaac, and both were to-be mothers who were expecting in this incredible time of their lives and instead met with a medical system that just did not treat their their pregnancy appropriately. And, and so now they're uh, their partners, Omari Maynard and Bruce McIntyre, left to raise the families, but they're also taking it a step further with doing some incredible advocacy work. And again, you, you're featured prominently in that in that film, and I just can't thank you enough for the the work that you're doing on this public discourse. I'd love to just hear your thoughts about both of those documentaries and the stories that they tell, and you know any concluding thoughts that you would share with our audience. Sure, Daniel. Thank, thank you for all of that. So let me start by just plugging Aftershock, the film. And I will say that I had no idea what the film was going to turn into in the end or the impact that it would have. The filmmakers reached out to me to summer of 2020, you know, shortly after the pandemic started. And my goal was to be helpful and to be on background. Ultimately, I befriended one of the protagonists, Bruce McIntyre, and was drawn into the film in that way. And the, the crew started to, to follow and, and captured hundreds of hours of, of footage and just w wasn't sure what the 90 minute cut was going to be, let alone never anticipated it would go to Sundance, win an award, get picked up by Hulu, any any of that. But I think, you know, the, the power of that film, and, and by the way, I, I watched the film, Sundance went virtual that year, but I got to watch the film with the families and with the filmmakers. And uh, that was the first time that I saw it. And I felt, even as somebody who'd been 
in front of the camera, behind the camera, just totally blown away by it. So this is my plug, which is that it doesn't feel like watching a film about maternal mortality is like, it's certainly not casual viewing. It doesn't necessarily sound like fun, but my, my plug for it is that it's called Aftershock for a reason. It's a called Aftershock because you hear what happens to Amber Rose Isaac and Shimani Gibson in the first 10 minutes of the film. And the rest of the film is about what happens next, which is how the families turn their pain into power. And actually, it's an extraordinarily inspiring film that shows what's possible when you have the truth on your side, when you are relentless in pursuing it, and when you hold power to account with courage. And in fact, one of the, the greatest things about the film is it's inspired a lot of other people to advocate at the community level. It's responsible for a lot of the federal and state legislation that we've seen. And it's responsible for the tenor, honestly, even on the corporate side, as I at Maven Clinic talk to potential clients who are employers, who are health plans, everybody feels accountable to driving equitable outcomes. And if you can do that with integrity, then they want to work with you. So I think the film has really advanced the national conversation in those ways. And I think the big lesson from it is that Historically, our healthcare system has treated people's experience as a secondary luxury that you kind of get to after you've made them safe. And what we've learned is that actually we got it backwards. Like the way that you make people safe is attending to their lived experience. That's what the, the film really makes clear. Well, Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining us this week in the race to value. This is just such a, an important issue in value-based care. It's also a moral imperative for our country that we do right by those birthing persons that are expecting a good experience and, and being able to survive with communication and support and being heard, being seen, and ultimately being there for the children. Again, this has been a really powerful conversation. I, I know I've learned a, a lot during our time today, and I'm sure our listeners are, are feeling very much the same way in terms of their gratitude towards uh, your willingness to, to share your story and the great work that you're doing there at Maven Clinic. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for bringing to this forum of, of people who really care about improving healthcare and are uh, equally nerdy as us and, and willing to go deep into some of these issues. I really appreciate it. 